0: This is AutoLine This Week, the show that gets you inside the global automotive industry. AutoLine This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode.
1: Hi, I'm John McElroy. Thanks for joining us on AutoLine This Week. Today's topic is all about the necessary materials that go into electric cars. As you all know, the automotive industry is plunging headlong into electrification, but EVs require special materials to be able to make them. And right now, China has pretty much dominated the supply chain for those materials. So can the U.S. develop its own supply chain? That's what we're getting into today, and I've got three experts to talk about that, including Gerard Barron. He's the chairman and CEO of a company called The Metals Company. They've got a very intriguing way of being able to mine nickel, cobalt, copper, and manganese. Some say it's a controversial uh, approach. We'll get into that later on. We also have Jack Lifton. He is a consultant, author, and lecturer, and is also an expert on rare earth minerals. We also have Ihor Kunash, who's retired, but is the former president of the Society for Mining, Metallurgy, and Exploration. And boy, does he know a lot about lithium. So gentlemen, thanks so much for joining me this morning. And Ihor, let's start with you. Lithium, so important to go into batteries for electric vehicles, but where do we stand? Does the U.S. have enough materials to build these batteries on its own? The,
2: the, the quick answer is no. Uh, what has happened with lithium, there were two, lithium comes from two types of deposit, hard rock, which has a mineral containing lithium. You have to blast, crush, cook, And produce the lithium chemical, which is basically lithium carbonate, which is down, go downstream to make lithium metal. So, this is part A. Uh, There is one brine deposit in the United States, which where I did my thesis and then became chief geologist for the company overseeing the development of that brine deposit. It has been pumping for about 50 years. And one of the things that people don't realize in brine deposits, in gold, silver, whatever, your gold is fixed, and you know where it is. In brine deposits, once you start pumping, you immediately start diluting the lithium by sucking in peripheral uh, waters. So this is the one thing. What happened to the U.S. industry is that when Chile started developing their lithium deposit at the Salar de Atacama, their prime motivation was producing potassium because potassium and nitrate gives you the potassium nitrate the fertilizer. So they were able to develop a process to the the uh, recover the potash but at the same time the lithium was left in the in the brine and therefore it came as a zero cost to them basically. And they started producing it dropped the price in half and shut down the two hard rock mining operation in North Carolina. So this is where we are. They are the giants. Chile is the giant. Uh, Argentina with two big deposits is the next one. One of the deposits in the Congo, which was humongous, but nobody uh, uh, tried it, hard rock. Now the Australians are developing that. And I'm not sure whether the Chinese are in there. And just as we were discussing, the Chinese tried to get into the Chilean deposit they are in Australia, which is the biggest hard rock mining, very important. They are in there also. So, uh, the U S in other words, come back to your original question. No, we do not have the capacity or the resources to be able, uh, to buck the Chinese, uh, in, in lithium right now.
3: And Jack, where do we stand with rare earth minerals? We have one producing mine in the United States. It's uh, MP, MP Materials is running it. It's the old Molly Corp mine in California. It is currently the world's largest uh, actual single mine producer of rare earths and one of the largest primary rare earth deposits in the world. But <clears> its entire <throat> output goes to China for the for Chinese industry, for the China, and it, it's their book to sell this for several years. They, they say they're in development of a total supply chain uh, for rare earth permanent magnets. But at, at this point in time, the United States has no capacity to refine rare earths, no capacity to make rare earth metals or alloys. So we're entirely dependent uh, actually on Chinese imports uh for for making for rare earth permanent magnets they dominate this industry
1: so let's turn to you jared you've got a very interesting way of going after nickel cobalt copper and manganese tell us a little bit about yeah what your company is uh trying to do here yeah
0: thanks john so at the metals company we're focused on collecting these polymetallic nodules or rocks off the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. And so, you know, we've all read about the material shortages Mm -hmm. that we're having to deal with. And of course, these major discoveries just are not to be found any longer on land. But a lot of people don't realize that, you know, the oceans are filled with metals and they come in several forms. Uh, There are sulfides and seafloor crusts, which we have no interest in. Uh, Our interest is focused around these polymetallic nodules. And it just so happens that they form in great abundance in the abyssal zone, which is around 4,000 meters below sea level. It's an area of the ocean where there is limited life. In fact, if we measure life in the form of biomass, there's up to 1,500 times less compared to where we're getting our nickel from in markets like Indonesia at the moment and everything in here is basically what we need to build a uh, an electric vehicle battery cathode so nickel cobalt copper and manganese so we're currently going through the permitting process we're completing our environmental studies to show the impact and you know we saw that the Biden 100 uh, day review and the the strategic review came out to say that that actually nickel is now on the critical mineral supply list because people have started to realize that like so many other of these battery metals, China dominates the supply and America needs to build (coughs) capacity around nickel. But unfortunately, the ore bodies just aren't there. So, you know, Mm -hmm. we, we feel that supplying them from our polymetallic nodules is the way forward.
1: So, Jared, you're saying there's just a bunch of rocks on the ocean floor that you can go down and pick up and get all these metals. Uh, it, it just sounds too easy, almost. How, <laughs> how would you go about getting these? I mean, you said 4,000 meters. That's like over 12,000 feet. That's way down there. It is.
0: It is. And luckily, about uh, there's a bit of history here, John. So they were discovered way back in the 1870s mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. British explorers who wanted to know what lay on the bottom of the ocean. And then fast forward to the 1970s and industry started to collect them. So they built the harvesters, solved many of the technical challenges. Rio Tinto through their subsidiary Canicot, built an onshore processing plant to turn these into nickel and copper. And they wanted to move into commercial production. But back in the 1970s, the world had not agreed who owned the oceans. Yeah. And so it was actually Henry Kissinger who was secretary of state at the time who wrote to the ambassadors of the United Nations and said hey we want to claim this area. But the ambassadors and the UN turned around and said no, you know we're we're still going through the process of figuring out you know where do your boundaries end. And so now the reason why this industry is moving forward and moving into commercial production is because the regulatory side is now in place, and so that's what makes now the time. And it just so happens the resource is perfectly aligned to the transition away from hydrocarbons, and and uh, you know it's an EV battery in a rock,
1: so we're, yeah. we're we're very fortunate. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. um mm-hmm. uh, Tesla, for example, has said it's going to approach lithium mining in a new and novel way, being able to get it out of clay. They say it's not going to be environmentally damaging or far less than what's been done before. What's your assessment? Can they actually do this?
2: Well, <clears throat> clays are not new in Northwestern Nevada. Uh, there is a, a deposit there that m- my good friend with the uh, Western mining, they try to produce lithium from that. Now, just in perspective, clays have about a quarter of a percent lithium. Okay. Spodumine, the mineral, when it's concentrated, it's 6%, or rather 3% lithium. The brines have, you know, 0.25% lithium in the brine. So, what you have to do with the clay, imagine. Uh, it's like co- copper in arizona it's uh, you know 0.4% that means that you're mining 99.996% 9. of waste you extract the copper and then you have to dump it somewhere well in the clay the the the, um, the methodology it's possible but you're going to have a lot of waste and a lot of gunky waste because um, as in the case of copper you have a hard rock um, uh, byproduct. Here, you're going to have a clay, a mushy clay, and it has been tried, and Western mining started to want to produce lithium, but they ended up, because that lithium is contained in a swelling clay, so now they are selling what they call hectacone to the oil drilling industry as a swelling agent in, their, uh, in the drilling for gas. So whether it will happen but you're going to be moving a lot, a lot of material to be able to produce that. So Western the u S, Clayton Valley, Nevada, where the lithium deposit is, they have lithium clays, Banacora in uh, Mexico, they have clays. there are clays all over the place. Whether that will become an economically competitor competitor to the other standard extractions, well we'll have to see it. But obviously at the high price of lithium now. Everybody's going into the business with whatever they can find, you know. So th- this is what's happening.
1: Jack, uh, in, when it comes to rare earths, a- as you know, uh, Japan, about a decade ago, decided it did not want to be so dependent on China because China had essentially cut it off from rare earth minerals. Yes. Retaliation, or they're arguing over some islands in the South China Sea.
3: Right.
1: My understanding is even though Japan started on its own pathway to developing its own supply chain they still rely on china for over 50% of their rare earths so my, i guess my question is what realistically could the us achieve as it wants to start to develop its own supply chain
3: the us could could actually be independent of china for for rare earths our, our total use per years about uh, Ten or 12,000 tons of earth permanent magnets, two-thirds of that is by the automotive industry. That's, that's the industry that, that needs these things the most. The United States has the capability to provide that. Well, what we don't have is any existing uh, processing capacity. You're, there's no point to developing a mine in the United States if it's just to supply China so th- this has been why private equity is, has not been interested in the, in this t- area uh, with the latest uh, white house directive so to speak in the response uh it's possible that that the federal government will will step in here and and quite frankly there are quite a few uh federal solicitations out right now asking people to to test out systems for separating earths, making metals and alloys, and, and then report on the economics of them. So I, th- that's the Department of Defense and the Department of Energy are both very much involved in this. How The thing everybody has to remember is that it takes years to, once you've modeled something and you say, we can do it, even if you're subsidized, we're years and years away from this. So right now, For more than ever, the Chinese completely control this. One, one more thing you need to understand: Where (laughs) does Tesla get the electric motors that drive the wheels of the car? They get them in China, okay? And they don't arrive. We don't buy magnets from China. We buy components that are enabled by by rare earth permanent magnets. The average car today made in the United States no matter what kind it is, has at least a pound of rare earth permanent magnets. Your accessory motors, seat, window, power steering, those are all rare earth permanent magnet motors. Now, that's one pound, half a kilo. If you go to uh, using a traction motor to drive a car, the electric car, you multiply that by a minimum of 10. A Ford hybrid today, hybrid, has 2.3 kilograms of neodymium iron boron magnet, in that motor which of course is made in China and the thing and and I'm not criticizing American sourcing I'm just everybody has to understand a company that says you know what we're going to buy we're going to make buy those them have the magnets made in uh, Indiana and we're going to ask an American company to make the motors and the fear is the Chinese company that's supplying you now will say you know what we don't need you as a customer anymore and then what do you do and since The American companies produce more than half of their cars in China today for the Chinese market, mostly. They don't want to get involved in that. So that's the problem. The Defense Department does not have sufficient demand to create a profitable American rare earth magnet industry. We have to have the consumer industry, and they're afraid of change. Yeah. Jared, Jack- Jack-
1: let's talk about your, uh, your metals company and getting all these materials off the mm-hmm. ocean floor. Uh, Ihor and Jack have talked about processing. What are your plans? Are you going to process these or simply mine these metals? No, we uh, will be vertically
0: integrated. And I think that's what this resource offers um, a great opportunity for American industry because, you know, if you'd asked me three years ago, John, We were quite advanced in uh, a partnership talks with Chinese processing companies. Mm -hmm. I I would have thought that we would have shipped our nodules to that part of the world. But of course, a lot's changed in those three years. And I guess what we see is that we can be the alternative to China because we've announced to the market that we will develop our Nori D area first and that means that when we're at our full rate of production and production starts in 2024 so not far away that we'll be producing around 120,000 tons of nickel and almost 3 million tons of manganese and you know the american industry is also very 100% dependent on china for manganese alloy as well and so we'll produce a lot of nickel, a lot of copper, a lot of cobalt and a lot of manganese. And so we have the option when we lift up our nodules of sending them to North America or to Norway or to uh, up to Quebec or to Asia, all the way down to Australia. One of our prerequisites is that we must have access to renewable power to meet our ESG demands. And also we must have infrastructure. So we don't want to be building new ports or new roads or rail. So we've already identified a site in Texas City. Uh, in fact, we we there was an article in the Houston Chronicle recently talking about uh, that. And you know, we see this as a tremendous opportunity of of making important steps towards energy independence for the USA economy, yeah. because you know you can build gigafactories, but as Igor and Jack have both commented, where are the metals going to come from? And China have been wonderful forward planners you know there's a reason why they're in this position because they saw this coming and now is the time when american industry needs to move and obviously uh, the biden administration have been making some early steps but now we need to see it continue and you know what we'd like to do is to build our first full-scale onshore processing plant somewhere in the usa and as I said, we've we've got some work happening in Texas City, but we're talking to other countries as well because other countries mm-hmm. are realizing the same thing: that you need these metals if you want
1: to get energy independence. So Jared, you know one of the uh, the controversies about your approach, too, of course, is the environment and while you i think rightfully point out that we already do a tremendous amount of environmental damage mining on land and that your process will be less environmentally damaging it's damaging nonetheless i mean how do you uh try to explain that to people who might be opposed to the project that you've got going well let's talk about damaging
0: there is firstly there's no such thing as zero impact right mm-hmm. we know that you know, it, it, things will have an impact, but it's but it's about how do you compare this set of impacts against the known set of impacts that we're currently putting up with? And, and the trouble is, you know, we've had a massive focus on fossil fuels, right? We've we've realized that lots of externalities, and we need to move away from them. But the same amount of ten- attention has not been applied to metals, and you can only fairly assess this when you look at it from a full life cycle analysis you know not just the process of uh, extracting the ore and processing the ore and shipping the ore but also where did the ore come from you know were we taking down our sequestered carbon sinks and of course you know when you look at the environment the environment in which we're operating it's called the abyssal zone and You know, if we had our time again, I'm sure we would carry out extractive industries in parts of the planet where there was the the least life. You know, you wouldn't go to the rainforests and dig them up and looking for metal-bearing ore if you could go to the Atacami Desert and pick up rocks that contained all of these metals. And that's what we have. At 4,000 meters below sea level, we're talking about the most common area on the planet. And most of the life down there, in fact, more than 70% of the life down there is bacteria living in the sediment. Now, that doesn't mean we don't care about it. Our company, the metals company, is spending just under $100 million on our environmental impact assessment. Um, I've just returned from our our last expedition in San Diego. It's the second of the year. There are three more planned this year. Our expeditions are filled with independent scientists who are helping us, you know, baseline this area, helping us examine you know, what the ecosystems are like on the seafloor, in the midwater columns, all the way through. And we are operating with a very high degree of confidence that we can massively compress those impacts, whether it's CO2 emissions, which as I mentioned earlier, we can reduce by more than 90%. We generate zero tailings. And John, last year the mining industry generated 190 billion tonnes of waste. And just to put that in context, if you add up municipal waste, that was about two billion tons. So, and we're looking to increase extractive industries by up to five to six hundred percent. So that's a lot of waste. Whereas we can pick up these uh, rocks and turn them into metals and generate zero waste. So it's a real game changer. And so, I think as uh, as we move down this path and we help people understand the benefits that this resource offers and it's it's, the benefits are in the resource.
2: Uh, Jerry, are you saying that you're recovering a hundred percent of everything in the nodule without waste?
0: We generate zero tailings and zero waste. Yes.
2: Okay. Thank you.
3: Zero tailings
0: and zero waste. How much
3: that is cobalt?
0: Well, there's about uh, just under 0.2 of 1%. Mm -hmm. So, when i mentioned before 120,000 tons of nickel will also generate about 10,000 tons of cobalt there are rare earths in them as well but the flow sheet we're using does not capture them
3: have you looked at the sediments around them that's usually where the rare earths are present
0: sure well i think you know as your good friend our good friend john halkier knows um there are parts of the ocean and, you know, around the Cook Islands and around Japan's coastal waters where some of those sediments contain very high concentrations of, of rare earths. But we've had no focus on rare earths. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our, our focus is on the base metals uh, and around nickel, copper, cobalt and manganese. I,
3: I think you, you need, the audience needs to know that the, the, uh, the availability accessibility of these materials is actually the largest resource of cobalt known on the planet, much, much larger than the terrestrial resources. So this is not to be ignored, because if we're going to do EVs, we're going to need cobalt, and most of the cobalt is is on the ocean floor in the, in the form of these manganese nodules. Hmm. Well, I think there are three metals
0: added through the Biden 100-day review, right? Mm-hmm. And the first one was nickel, mm-hmm. lithium, and cobalt. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and, and unfortunately, America is nowhere in that race. <laughs> in any
3: of those, right?
0: No.
1: Yeah, in both the mining and the processing side. Very yeah. interesting here. It looks like we, uh, as a country, and I, I would assume probably the same applies to Europe as well, we, we got some heavy lifting in front of us here. But I want to thank uh, the the three of you. This has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, We're going to have to come back at this uh, again in the future and see where we stand, if we've been making any progress on this. But uh, thank you so much for your time today. I mean, this has been brilliant. Oh, and and Jared, uh, the metals company, you guys are going to be going public pretty soon. Is that right? Yeah, John, we announced a go public uh, via a
0: merger with SOAC. (laughs) which is uh, currently listed on the NYSE. And uh, you can learn more about it by typing in SOAC. And, yeah, it's, it, it's exciting for us because it gives us the capital we need to get into our first production. And it also gives us a bigger stage to tell this important story. So, yeah, it's an exciting time for this industry.
2: Uh, Gerald, as the Chinese nibbling at the IPO,
0: well, the Chinese, <laughs> we, we hold three licenses in this area, but the Chinese hold two. So they're also very active uh, mm. as well. Mm. Yeah. Wow.
1: Well, with that, we're going to have to wrap it up. Jared Barron from The Metals Company, Jack Lifton, Ihor Kunash, thank you so much for all your insight. You guys have a wealth of experience, and I'm so pleased you shared that with us today.
0: Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, John.
2: Autoline this week
0: partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode.